Good morning. My name is Nick Swan, the associate pastor here at Grace. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online this morning. We are continuing our series on the life of Jacob, a series entitled Amazing Grace, the Life of Jacob. And the title of our message this morning is True Love, True Love. Uh, Let me begin this morning by praying for us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you. Open our ears to hear your voice, that you would turn our hearts toward you. For you are the only one worthy of our love. And the only one who loves us with a soul-satisfying love that will never let us go. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are made to love and to be loved. Inherent in our very being is this need for love. When we love something, we set our affection upon it. We worship it. We glory in it. When we love something, we place our hope in it. We trust in it. We rest in it. And ultimately, we find satisfaction in it. But not only are we made to give love, we are also made to receive love. Like breathing, we both exhale, we give love, and we inhale, we receive love. We are made to love and to be loved. We are also made to love God and others. However, there must be a right ordering of this love. Meaning we must always find our greatest satisfaction when God is the object of our deepest affections. And the one we turn to for love, both to give love and to receive love. It's only then out of this overflow of this giving of love to God and receiving love from God that we are then able to love others that are around us. This right ordering of love is often where we run into difficulties, however. Each of us at various times... And in various ways, we look to things or to people other than God to give our love to them, hoping that they can satisfy us, and to long for love from them, hoping that if we had that love, we would find satisfaction. Our passage this morning gives us a snapshot of what it looks like when our loves are disordered, when God isn't first but something else is. Jacob loves Rachel with a disordered love. He is obsessed with her. He's even desperate for her. He must have her. And yet once he has her, he's not truly satisfied. And Leah, she longs to be loved, particularly to be loved by Jacob. She does everything she knows to please him. And yet, in the end, this love is withheld. Our main point this morning is this. Our longing for love can only find ultimate fulfillment in the giving of love to God and the receiving of love from God. Our longing for love can only find ultimate fulfillment in the giving of love to God and the receiving of love from God. Let's begin point number one with Jacob's obsessive love for Rachel. So let's begin by setting the stage. Jacob's first meeting with Rachel and Laban. So Jacob has completed this long journey. It's 400 miles, by the way. So he's been traveling for quite some time. He finally makes his way to his mother's family. 
The reason he's making this journey is that his parents do not want him to marry a woman from the Canaanites. They want him to marry someone from their family. So he makes this long 400-mile journey. And when he's in the region of Haran, he, he runs into some shepherds and he says, Do you know Laban? Do you know my family member? And they say, actually, we do. You are in the right place. And in fact, Rachel, his daughter, is now approaching to water her sheep. So Rachel comes up in an act of service. He, he moves away the stone from the well and he allows them to, to water. And at the same moment, this event happens, which was probably somewhat surprising to Rachel. He suddenly bursts into tears, hugs her and begins to kiss her and say, I'm one of your long lost family members. I know you. And she's a little overwhelmed, runs back to her dad and says, there's this guy who says that he's related to us, you must come and meet him. So Laban comes and he become, begins to talk to Jacob, realizes this is his nephew, the son of his sister, and then invites him to their home to live for a month. And at the end of this month, Laban says, you're here, you're working, I should probably compensate you in some way. And this is where we pick up in verse 15. Look with me, verses 15 through 20. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman... Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel... And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. These verses reveal that Jacob loves Rachel and therefore he wants to marry her. They also reveal some, some of the family dynamics which we are going to see play out in the coming verses. First we learn that there are two sisters. Leah is the older, Rachel is the younger. We also learn that Rachel is beautiful, beautiful in form and appearance. In today's speech, she's got a nice body and a really pretty face. And Jacob really, really likes her. And he wants her. But we also learn that Leah has weak eyes. She is much less attractive than her younger sister. So Jacob wants the pretty one. And he wants her really bad. So how badly does he want her? Well, he's willing to work for seven years in order to get her. Now, most of us are struck by the seven years, which it is impressive. You think about, if I wanted a girl, would I work for her for seven years? This is quite some time to spend waiting for someone that you love. However, it's not just the seven years that are important. It's how much money he would have earned in those seven years. And it far exceeds the normal bride price that would have been paid as a dowry for a woman. Seven years he's working, he's penniless, and yet he's willing... ...to pay this premium to earn this woman that he so desires. There's no haggling, there's no bargaining. Sure, seven years. I will work for her seven years and pay for her because I want her so badly. You might even say that he is obsessed with her. He would do anything to get her. So he toils for seven years. Think about seven years. Where were you in 2015? Let's pause. Works seven years. ...years for her. But amazingly, Jacob doesn't view these seven years as drudgery. There's no indication that he regretted the agreement. In fact, he says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel... ...and they seemed to him but a few days... ...because of the love that he had for her. 
So finally the wedding day comes, and it's on the wedding day that the nature of Jacob's love begins to become, come into clearer focus, and not in a good way. At first his love may seem noble, seven years. Rachel is of such value that he will pay handsomely for her, do anything for her, count it as nothing to labor for her. But verse 21, it casts a different light on his love. Look with me at verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Consider for a moment the crassness of his statement. He doesn't say, my love, I've labored for you for seven years. Finally, we can be together. Finally, we can have a family together. Finally, the day has arrived. I've waited for you. I love you. And we can finally be married. What does he say? Give me my wife. ...that I can go into her. My time is completed. Essentially, listen, I've worked hard. Give me my reward. But in this case, it doesn't appear that Rachel is the reward. The reward is the marital relations with her. It's about as crude and tactless and unromantic a statement as can be imagined. Especially when you consider he's saying it to the father-in-law of his father-in-law... ...the father of the bride. Men, how do you think... Your father-in-law would have responded on the wedding day when you said, Hey, give me my wife. Not very well. Sadly, what we see in Jacob's statement is this objectification of his soon-to-be wife. He wants her, but he wants her to satisfy his own selfish desires. And he wants her so badly, he's willing to do almost anything, give almost anything to get her. But the tables are about to be turned on Jacob. Look with me at verses 22 to 25. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and he made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob, the deceiver, had been deceived. Now, according to custom, Leah would have been heavily veiled throughout this entire ceremony. There's been a long day, evening, of feasting. Jacob is likely quite drunk at this point. And Laban chooses this moment when he's drunk and he doesn't know what's going on to deceive him. He brings his heavily veiled older daughter Leah to a drunk Jacob instead of Rachel whom he had promised him. And Jacob and Leah, they spend the wedding night together. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up, alcohol is passed out of the system. And behold, this isn't Rachel, it's Leah. I've been tricked. So Jacob immediately goes to Laban to protest this deception. Verse 25, and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And to this complaint, Laban responds with a stinging one-liner that silences Jacob. Verse 26, Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now remember, what's Jacob? Jacob's the secondborn. Jacob is the opportunist who manipulated the firstborn older brother Esau into giving away his birthright for a bowl of stew. Jacob is the deceiver 
who tricked his father into giving the blessing of the firstborn to him, pretending to be his firstborn brother. This Jacob, the secondborn, the deceiver, has now been deceived. What, would, what's, what must that moment have been like for Jacob? All we know of his response is silence. Whether Laban's retort humbled him or enraged him, we do not know. But we, what we can be sure of is that the bitter irony of this situation was not lost on him. What goes around Jacob comes around. The deceiver has been deceived. Jacob had finally gotten a taste of his own medicine. In the end, Laban does give Rachel to Jacob a week later, but... Jacob must serve another seven years in order to pay for her. Fourteen years. Seven years for a woman he did not want. And seven more years for a woman whom he idolized. So what are we to learn from this episode? We know from last week that God is at work in Jacob's heart. But Jacob is clearly, clearly still a work in progress. Just like his prayer from last week where he was bargaining with God. Do you remember his prayer? If you give me this, 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 and this, then I will serve you. We still see a man who's operating on that principle. That he wants to live life on his own terms. That he wants God to give him what he wants. But God is unmoved. And God uses Laban's deception to humble him. God turns the tables on Jacob and gives him a taste of his own medicine. And in this process of humbling Jacob, he's doing so because he wants him to ultimately know that the best thing for him is to not love something else, but to love God himself. We not only see God's process of humbling Jacob, we also see in this episode what it looks like when an obsessive love takes over our hearts. What we see in Jacob is a man who so idolized Rachel that he was willing to do anything to get her. And he did so because he thought, if I can just have her, this beautiful woman, then I will be truly satisfied. Jacob's love was not a self-giving love. It was a selfish love that was all about serving his own desires. And God loved Jacob too much to let him have the idol of his heart because he knew that if he gave him this idol of his heart, that he still wouldn't be satisfied. You see, idols, the things that we worship in the place of God, they never truly satisfy us. They don't. To paraphrase Tim Keller on this passage, over and over again, idols convince us that we are going to bed with Rachel. But in the morning, idols are always Leah. They never deliver on what they promise. They only lead us into greater and into greater bondage. And in the end, we always become what we worship. In this case, Jacob's animalistic desire for Rachel made him into a beastly man. Crassly speaking of his bride like an object. And a drunkard that didn't even know whom he was going to bed with on his wedding night. Idolatry, it always leads us to take good things and to turn them into ultimate things. And in so doing, we end up crushing them under the weight of our own desires. Because the thing that we so worship, it can't actually give us what we desire. And yet, time and again, we go back to it. Maybe this time it'll deliver. Maybe this time it'll deliver. And what God is saying is it will never deliver. Idols never give us what we hope. The pathway to freedom is the recognition that God has made us to love 
Him. He alone is worthy of our most ardent affections. To worship anything else is to debase ourselves. And sooner or later, God in His mercy will humble us in order to bring us back to Him. Now in the midst of all the drama of Jacob and Rachel and Laban, it's easy for us to forget someone. And that's Leah. Leah, who's lived in the shadow of her beautiful sister her whole life. Leah, the daughter who's been used as a pawn by her father in this scheme with Jacob. And Leah, now the wife of Jacob, who is an unwanted woman. And it's to Leah that we now turn. Point number two, Leah's longing to be loved. Leah's longing to be loved. If Jacob sought fulfillment through his love of Rachel, Leah sought fulfillment by seeking the love of Jacob. Leah longed to be loved. Yet love was painfully absent in her life. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, consider, consider Leah's life for a moment. Her whole life she's lived in the shadow of her younger sister's beauty. Unlike Rachel, who is beautiful in form and appearance, she had what verse 17 called weak eyes. It's unclear what this Hebrew term means, but it's certainly not beautiful. It's not a positive comparison with his, her sister. She's then used by her father as a pawn in a game with Jacob. Her father, the one who should have loved her and protected her and defended her honor, thought so little of her that he, he gave her away to a man that he knew did not love her. Either because he thought it was the only way he was going to get rid of the, the not-so-attractive daughter or because he wanted to use her to get seven more years out of Jacob. Either way, how he treated her was reprehensible. This is how his, her father treated her. Next, she finds herself married to a man who in no way wants her nor desires her. Then her sister is given to her husband as a second wife. She's been living in the shadow of her sister her whole life. Now she's going to have to live in the shadow of her sister for the rest of her life in this twisted, dysfunctional, polygamist marriage. Leah, who longed to be loved, was hated by the two men who should have loved her the most, her father and her husband. But verse 31, look what the Lord does. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Although Leah was hated, God in his mercy allowed Leah to provide something that her beautiful sister could not. Children. But her joy in childbearing was short-lived. Even when she provided heirs for Jacob, he still, he didn't love her. And we hear her despair in the naming of her first three children. Look with me at verses 32 to 34. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. And the Hebrew word means to see. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now, now, my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon, which means to hear. Again, 
she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time, this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi, a name which means to be attached. In the naming of these three sons, Leah's heartache is palpable. She's longing to be seen. She's longing to be heard. She's longing to be attached, longing to be loved. And this longing to be loved, it's led her to chase after the affection of Jacob. She couldn't compete with her sister's beauty, so she tried to outdo her by, by providing an heir. But even then, she still wasn't enough. She was still unloved. She was still hated. Do you ever long to be loved? Do you ever long to be heard, to be, to be seen? Do you ever long to be desired, to be wanted? Do you ever long for someone in love to attach themselves to you? Leah knew these longings. But she turned to the wrong people to satisfy these longings. Her, her father withheld this love and her husband withheld this love. And so she was crushed. What do you turn to for love? What do you cling to in the hopes that your longing to be loved will finally be fulfilled? Is it your spouse and their affection for you? Is it the love of your children? Is it friendships? Is it affirmation from others that you are good enough, that you have achieved enough, that you are beautiful and accomplished enough? What do you turn to? What do you look to that you think, if I just had this, then I would know that I'm seen and heard and loved? We are made to be loved and to love. But when we look for love from the wrong things, we will know nothing but heartache, just like Leah. But here's the good news. There is one who can truly satisfy us. One whose love will always satisfy our deepest desires. There is one who truly sees us and hears us, attaches himself to us, and will not let us go. And that person is Christ. Point number three, the true love of God. It's easy in this long list of names of Jacob's children to overlook Leah's fourth child and his name. But it holds the key to understanding this passage and where we can find the love that each of us long for. Look with me at verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, which is the Hebrew word for praise. Then she ceased bearing. Leah, after longing for the love of her father, after longing to get out of the shadow of her sister, after longing for the love of her husband, she finally turns to find her satisfaction and longing in God. She finally turns to the one who can satisfy the deepest longings of her soul. The blessing of her fourth child, rather than being a means of earning the love of her husband, is finally about receiving the love of God. No more earning Simply receiving. A love that once she has tasted of it leads her to praise God. Who truly sees her. Who truly hears her. Who attaches himself to her. Who truly loves her. 
God's love for Leah shows us just how much God delights to love the unlovable and through them bring about his purposes of salvation. You see, Judah, although a wonderful gift, is more than just her fourth child. Judah is the son through whom God will bring about his purposes of redemption. In the midst of all of this brokenness and dysfunction in Jacob's family, even there, God is unfolding his plan of redemption. Since the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, God had been working to weave this golden thread of redemption through this tapestry of a fallen world. And in Genesis 3, God promised that Eve would have a son and that through this son, his people would be delivered. Through this child, mankind's innate desire and need to be loved would finally be fulfilled. And that promised line of descendants has made its way through Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, and now through Jacob's union with not Rachel, but Leah. It's through Leah's son, Judah, that all of the kings of Israel will come. It's through Judah that Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings, will come to deliver his people. And it's Jesus who frees us from loves that never satisfy us. Jesus, the descendant of Judah, he, he saw our affliction. He heard our cry for help and he attached himself to us so that our longing might be fulfilled and our despair might be turned to praise. Jesus is the only object of our affection that will ever truly satisfy. And it's only his love for us that will ever truly satisfy. In love, Christ came to rescue us, to live for us as one of us, to die for us, to ascend for us, and one day to come again for us. When we were unlovable, in love, he saw you, he heard you, and he willingly attached himself to you that he might redeem you so that you might know a love that is unending and far superior to any love that this world will ever offer. This is what Christ offers us. If you are here and you need to know this love, and each and every one of us do, the love of being seen, of being heard, of being united to someone who loves us, look no further. Christ offers all of these things to you, and he does so for free. By faith, trust in him, and he will overwhelm you with mercy and tenderness and kindness and forgiveness. He will overwhelm you with his love. Turn to Christ this morning, whether it be the first time or the thousandth time. Do not look elsewhere. It's already right in front of you. All you must do is receive it. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our love. And he will give you the love that you desperately need and that he has designed you to receive from him. He will love you with a love that will never let you go. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see. And I pray that you would do so now. That you would help us to see all of the disordered loves, all of the false loves that will never deliver. And that we might turn to you now and receive love from you. The love that we, we so desperately need and so desperately want. And that there we might find satisfaction for our souls. And out of response to that, may we turn to you in love and praise and worship you, the only one worthy of our most ardent affections. I ask these things in Christ's name.
Amen.